Hey all, it's Ryan Williams, host of the podcast. So excited you're here. Want to thank everyone who has purchased my Influencer Economy book. It was a labor of love for many years. The book is a three-step framework for anyone launching a business or idea about how to launch yourself, collaborate with influencers to thrive in the digital age. Super excited that everyone's already checked it out. Find out more at theinfluencerbook.com. Before I forget, please leave an Amazon review if you like the book. It really helps me get more visibility and to teach the lessons of the influencer method to the world. Hey, y'all. Welcome to the episode number part two with John Levy. This is Ryan Williams of the Rhino Lab, stories from the influencer economy. If you want to check out all of our archives, go to influencereconomy.com. To listen to part one of this episode, go back one more episode to hear John's story about his new book, The 2 a.m. Principle, that is out for everyone to order about the science of adventure. Additionally, John is the host of the Influencers Dinner community. So on this episode, we talk about networking and building powerful relationships with influencers, as well as building a powerful and impactful community. I love this conversation, got a lot out of it. And if you want to hear more about John's book, go back to the previous episode, number 98. Hey, everyone, welcome back to the lab. I'm here this week with John Levy, who's the author of The 2 a.m. Principle. How's it going, John? Uh, Amazing. Actually, I'm super excited to be here. And uh, I've been having a lot of fun working on this project. So what excites me about your book is that it's been a long-term project for you. You've just recently released it. And we first were acquainted with each other because you have planned these influencer dinners. Mm -hmm. And I've done episodes before on planning type of exclusive connection of influencer type events. So I'd love for you to introduce sort of the concept you have with the dinners. Oh, sure. Uh, So uh, my background is I'm a human behavior scientist. I study influence and I study, well, the science of adventure. And on the influence side, about seven, eight years ago, I got really curious what causes the most influential people in our culture to engage. I'm not just talking about Instagrammers. I'm talking people who can actually shape an industry. And uh, what I discovered is that there are these four characteristics that when you apply them, uh, these people will engage. And from that, I created a secret dining experience. Uh, Essentially, 12 people are invited at a time. None of them know each other. They're not allowed to talk about what they do or even give their last name. They cook dinner together. And when they sit down to eat, everybody gets to guess what everybody else does. And then they find out they're sitting with a Nobel laureate, a famous author, an Olympic medalist, the editor-in-chief of a major magazine, uh, two-time Olympic gold medalists, and so on. And so I've hosted over 800 people across eight different cities uh, over the past several years. And it's been just a real trip. And so you do these dinners where people, they cook the meal, Mm -hmm. and then they can't talk professionally about what they do. Is that right? Absolutely. Uh, The key here is that and, you know, this, it took years to develop this kind of body of intellectual property around how to actually design one of these. But the, the key here was that I wanted to find a way to get them to bond without their status getting in the way. And by eliminating the option to talk about career, then you talk about the things that you talk to your best friends about, like your vacation and your kids and uh, what you're excited about in that book you read. And as a byproduct, it feels a lot more intimate. And then by having some kind of activity for them to do, it causes them to bond more quickly. And in this era of everything digital, social media, 
you know, mobile connections. Uh, in, the, in my book, I talk about meeting people IRL in real life is so undervalued. Mm-hmm. And obviously you agree. And so what is the difference between doing these dinners as opposed to something on a Skype or remote chats? I think that we developed as a species uh, socially, right? So we literally can't survive without a community of people around us. There's just too much to do. And, you know, they say it takes a village to raise a child. It takes a village to do just about anything. Uh, The number of people involved in just getting us a box of cereal is thousands at this point. So when I think that we're wired, in fact, to be around each other. And as nice as it is to see you over Skype or and chat with you, um, unless you have that physical contact, uh, I think that we lose something. And there's a certain level of intimacy and, and community and trust that's built when you're actually physically with a person. And then, moreover, when you talk to people, you know, you're a firm believer in helping others and giving a forum mm-hmm. for people to connect. So intrinsically... There's some people out there that they don't understand the value of connecting others. And so what, do you, what would you tell them that are listening? So I'd actually pull up two pieces of research. One is by uh, Adam Grant, who's the brilliant Morton professor who wrote the book Give and Take. If you haven't read it, I highly encourage you to. In it, he looks at who's the most successful and who's the least successful between givers, takers, and matchers, those that match the behavior that they're presented with. And what he found was really surprising to me. He found that the least successful were the givers, but they were also the most successful. And what separated the two groups of givers was those that could also push their own agenda in the process. So they weren't giving to the point that they were, you know, destroying their life. But it reinforced this idea to me that you can be incredibly generous and you don't necessarily need to have a lot of physical things, right? You don't need money to be generous. You can be generous with your time, with your community, with your friends. All these things become an option. And then the second is that uh, research by Nicholas Christakis and James Fowler examined the obesity epidemic. And they were curious, does it pass from person to person the way a cold does? Or is it a percentage of the population, let's say like Alzheimer's or dyslexia or something? And what they found was startling. If you have an obese friend, your chances of obesity increase by 45%. Your, Your friends who don't know them 25%, 25%, their friends by 10%, and their friends by 5%. Right. Yeah. Which means that we are fundamentally impacted by the network of people that we have around us. And so if I meet somebody extraordinary, I don't only want them to have a positive impact on me. I want them to have a positive impact on my friends so that they in turn can also have a positive impact on me. Because as they say, a rising tide, was it raises all ships or something? That's like that? all boats. Yeah. They, um, I, uh, Adam Grant was one of the early guests on my podcast and mm-hmm. side note, I didn't know Adam. My friend went to Wharton where Adam teaches. My friend didn't even have Adam as a teacher. He sent mm-hmm. Adam a cold email and said, Hey, my friend Ryan, and I'd written an article called why giving without expecting anything in return is the best business model mm-hmm. and for life. And he said, Hey, you should go on Ryan's podcast and after a bunch of emails, Adam came on, and it was really remarkable because, you know, I asked him if he thinks he's a giver, and he said he didn't want to judge himself, because we talk about Adam's work a lot on this podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you plan these dinners, you know, you mentioned you got to give with purpose, and mm-hmm. you have to give with your own intentions set towards the outcome. How do you balance that out? So I, I'm, I think it's important to differentiate with 
giving without any expectation of anything in return. Um, because I don't expect anything from my guests, right? I would like for them to remain part of the community if they're cool and to participate and to be good to each other. Uh, but if that's not what they want, then this isn't the right environment for them. Then there's also knowing what it is that you're committed to. So I'm not going to run a dinner, so many dinners that I go broke. Um, and I'm not going to dedicate 100% of my time to it because then I can't support myself, with, which is I support myself through speaking and consulting and research and writing. And so I think it's important that uh, just to make those two distinctions. The other thing is that I really focus on the intention of the experience is to create a community. I, I get the benefit of <clears throat> I get the benefit of being a part of this community and surrounding myself with these extraordinary people just based on the ability to think differently or have access to people that I normally wouldn't or when I wanted to work on a project, then they come and support me because now we're friends. And so the objective first and foremost is to produce an extraordinary experience to bond them. And then friendship is the end result. Right, and that's you, what I care about. Ultimately, people burn through network connections, like nothing worse mm -hmm. than going to a, an event and someone adds you on LinkedIn the next day. You instantly, yeah. I say, I'm never going to talk to that person again. If they view, uh, I mean, if, like, you know, if they, if they value me, yeah. value me as just like a connection on LinkedIn, mm -hmm. you know, on the grand scheme of things, that's very, I have 550 some connections, right? Mm -hmm. um, so intrinsically, there's something different about building a, even a professional friendship with someone where you collaborate. Yeah. I, you know, one of the interesting things is that I meet so many people that it becomes impossible to manage often individual relationships. And so, um, what I often recommend is that people have something to invite others to. Uh, and so that way I can get together a group of 30 or 40 people at something, uh, or more 60 plus and have an ability to create community among them. So they feel still tied to me, but otherwise it's near impossible for me to manage those relationships. What I, I totally agree with you. I don't like the people who meet you for three seconds within the first five seconds, pass you their business card, then walk away and, and then link, uh, connect with you on LinkedIn because it, it misses the human factor. It's then I'm just a cog in their machine. And then when you're thinking about, you know, kind of leveling up your, your community, because I think in this day and age, everyone needs a community. You know, it's like through the internet, yes. you, you need that base. What is, your, what is your opinion on like the value of having a community? So I think, well, this is, I, you, you point to something I talk a, a lot about. And the first thing is that I don't call it networking. I focus on community building, right? Uh, networking is a very weak position to be in. It's you at the heart at the center, and then a bunch of lines running to you. But the strength of a network is built on the number of connections between the points, and that's called a community. And so ultimately, whenever you meet people, whenever, regardless of if you're trying to build a startup, then or you are uh, trying to you know raise kids, you need a, a very tight community to be able to support you in the process. Because if you look at, I think it was a study that was done on in fact, through LinkedIn, that most people get their jobs not through their friends, but through loose ties. Because it's people that we mildly know or have met a couple of times that there's a lot more of those. And so they come across a lot more opportunities. And the more you can keep those people around, the, the stronger your ability to produce results are. And so 
it's true. Like you get jobs based on a friend of a friend, mm-hmm. you know, or an, a friend acquaintance of someone, you know, you haven't seen in a couple of years and you reconnect. So these loose ties in the end, how much of your own personal success do you attribute to those types of connections? Oh, wow. Um, like for someone listening now, that's sort of thinking, okay, like I live in Spokane, Washington, or I live in, you know, Des Moines, Iowa, and they don't necessarily have a breadth of people to connect with. Uh, so I think that that's not necessarily true. I think there is a breadth of people to connect with. Uh, and you really want to be clear on what your objectives are. Um, there's nothing wrong with sending a cold email saying, hey, I'm very curious about what you do. I'd love to chat. Uh, I get those. And whenever I can, I try to hop on Skype for a few minutes. Um, but it, I think that it's become easier than ever that if you're willing to risk kind of embarrassing yourself or getting it wrong, you can have an opportunity to connect with the most extraordinary people in our culture. Anything from a famous scientist who won the Nobel Prize, and their email addresses are all readily available online, it's, they're academics, all the way through to executives at, at big companies. And if you know how to write a short, compelling message to them, they'll often respond. And what's a good call to action for someone to offer? Because I, I believe that like the era of just asking someone for coffee is over. And that's really about collaborating with someone. And you need to have some sort of project or idea, even if it's just getting feedback on something you're building. Like what's a good foot in the door through a cold email to reach someone who's influential? So I often ask, um, I ask people this question. And what I keep coming back to is that it needs to be remarkable. And sure, it could be a project, but as a species, we evolved to share an oral history, right? So we pass down our knowledge orally. If it's not worth remarking about, if it's not worth discussing, then it's not socially or culturally relevant. Uh, so whatever it is, you want it to stand out and you want it to grab people's attention. I'd even recommend creating curiosity. There's this concept called uh, information gap theory. It was developed by George Lowenstein. And the way it works is like this. Let's say I present you with an idea. And the idea is incredibly familiar. Right? I say, oh, uh, did you hear, uh, we were watching a football game and the score just went up while you were grabbing something from the kitchen. I tell you the information. It's not really that relevant, like you absorb it very quickly. If I start talking about some obscure concept in theoretical astrophysics, it's so scary and daunting, you don't want to participate. But if the gap is big enough so it's interesting, but not so big that it's scary, uh, you will do anything you can to find the answer to the question or to fill that gap. It's like an itch you need to scratch. And so I'll give you an example. Ask me either what I do or where I'm from. Uh, What do you do? What do I do? I spend uh, most of my life either convincing people to cook me dinner or uh, hoping I don't get killed while traveling. You put and death as a priority, like avoiding death as a priority? Tell me more. Is that, yeah. you know, it's like... Uh, like, what, what do you mean? And then I go, well, you know, I was crushed by a bull in Pamplona. I was recently in Antarctica and I set my trip's polar swim record. I lost all feeling in my arms and legs. And, you know, I think I'm pretty, <laughs> I was pretty close to drowning. Uh, but that information gap, you, you can't walk away from that conversation without getting at least some clarity on either getting people to cook you dinner or the not dying thing. So are you saying that you create, like you want to potentially tell a story around that, but 
instead of just giving you a spiel like, hey, I like to run the bulls in Pamplona. Yeah, exactly. If I go, oh, I'm an, you know, an adventure scientist or something like that, that might actually pique people's interest. But if I go straight into the story, it seems a little weird. But also, I don't necessarily have the time to do that in an email. So how can I create a question that you would want answered? Which and is, the only which way is, to get... Which is not what you do. Yes. I mean, it's the worst question you really can ask someone, right? I mean, it's yes. so vague and nonspecific. But if I'm going to email a complete stranger, can I create a gap in their knowledge so that the only way they can get an answer is if they email me back? So the, the titles of the emails that I was sending out for promoting my book was, Do You Know the 2AM Principle? Mm-hmm. Now you see that what it creates a natural gap. So at least you'll open it. I don't know if you'll engage much further. But you want to give people a reason. And then whatever the answer is has to be satisfying enough that it was worth their inquiry. Otherwise, they're going to feel gypped. Like a lot of the clickbait. Like, this nun kicked a man and what happened next will shock you. (laughs) Right. So then if you're someone who's doing cold outreach, because I I do it all the time equally. I did it for my book. I would always ask a question. You know, I would say influencer economy chat. Like, oh, what's that? I, I'm an influencer. I like the economy. So you got to pique people's interest. But do you need a platform? Like, do you need a reason? Like a, a book or a podcast? Like, how, what do people that just sort of want general feedback or advice do? So I think that that's fine. There's a really wonderful study that was done on photocopiers. And the what happened was they put people in line to get photocopies. And they said, I want to cut the line uh, to make some photocopies. And some percentage of the time, people would agree to let them go to the front of the line. But when people added the phrase, because, uh, it dramatically increased the number of people who agreed. So if they said, because I'm in a rush, then all of a sudden, people would agree and let them cut. But here's the amazing part. If they added, because... And then the phrase, I have to make photocopies, which is adding no additional information. It's not even a real justification. Can I cut you in line at the photocopier because I need to make photocopies? They had almost the same frequency of letting them cut as somebody who had a real reason, like a a standard justifiable reason. So just having a purpose? I think, yeah, I think that there's an element of having a reason and having what I think is especially effective is having a reason that's a victory over something. So I'll give you an example. And I don't have the research to back this. This is more of an inclination I have. If I say, listen, Ryan, I'd love a few minutes of your time because I grew up in a culture where nobody supports anybody. And I'm incredibly inspired by your show. And it would mean the world to me if I could get 15 minutes of your time on Skype just to understand your perspective of the world. I think it would skyrocket my life or whatever it is. The key is to keep it super short, mm-hmm. make the request clear, only have one request in there. You can't have a series of bullet points that are like, I need these five things. And it needs to be like a yes or a no. Right. And I think that you'll find that people in, if, in general will want to do stuff for others. And they then, want to be supported. And then what about, I, I sometimes give people outs 
like I say, oh, no worries if you're too busy or... I think that that's very important. Yeah. Uh, also, if you send up a follow-up email, you give them a justification for why they haven't gotten back to you. Like, listen, I totally figure that somebody that's operating at your level or doing whatever your job is, is drowning in emails. So I completely uh, understand if you're too busy. Uh, but if you have 30 seconds to just give me a yes or no on this, I'd be incredibly appreciative either way. Right, because you need to have some sort of closure... Yes. You don't want to be remembered as that person that I never responded to. That you feel guilty because, about and you're like... Yeah, you don't want that emotional baggage there. And and the other aspect is you never, ever, ever want to make people feel bad about something. Like, it's just, there's no benefit to it. I know that we have we as human beings can be insecure and have a tendency to um, want to lash out or be angry or uh, give or make people feel stupid. The high road is the only road. And there's just no benefit because there are so many people out there that can accomplish the same thing as the person you wanted to reach that there's the, just, I don't see the positive aspect of creating that. And then sort of, you know, focusing on the fact that people that you reach out to equally want to help and pay it back and giving back to, you know, Adam Grant's theory about give or succeeding the most is that I find that Mm -hmm. people, if you have something compelling or you ask for, something small with people that their proclivity is to help you because they've people that are successful recognize that they had to climb up the ladder of success and it's not easy. And so have you found that people are receptive because Mm -hmm. they want to pay it back? Um, I think they are. And I think the key there is that as people become more successful, they realize that the way that they need to give back is different. So, um, you know, Anna Wintour isn't necessarily going to be able to <laughs> sit down with you, but she will run the Met Gala and raise millions for that incredible institution. And so uh, they become the higher up, up in their success. They go, I've generally noticed they become more mission driven. Uh, and so you, if you're going to target people, target people and then uh, who are up and coming and then um, try and then leapfrog from them to other recommendations that are higher up. Like kind of uh, because a personal introduction makes, yeah, makes a huge difference. So then what, when you talk about the influencer dinners that you put on, what's the mission behind it? Cause the it, mission is to, cause it, just oh. sorry to interrupt, but cause it sounds like there's two types of avenues. One is sort of the one-on-one, Hey, I'd love 15 minutes, but then there's a mm-hmm. different level, which is I'm doing the Met Gala and I'm Anna Wintour because there's value in a bigger mission. Is that, is that what you're saying? Oh, uh, well, I think that, uh, Anna Wintour isn't the type of person we target for the dinners. Um, she's at the level of like a Sir Richard Branson or a, right? Like she's, she's so mission driven and her life is so scheduled that I don't know if she has the time to be part of a community and that's fine. Like I applaud her for what she's been able to create. It's not like, you know, I look for people who are captains of industry who have the ability to shape an industry but also have a desire to connect with others and be part of a community, right? And that's often not going to be like an A-list celebrity, and that's totally fine. But you will get, you could get like a major Hollywood producer or famous actors. It's just not going to be Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie. Um, The mission of the influencers is to improve the quality of their lives, their communities, and hopefully one day the world. The belief that there's a lot of organizations that are purely mission-driven, and it's great to get the support of people, uh, but 
I don't know what the long-term uh, commitment you'll get from people, especially if you're surrounding one specific topic. My theory was that if I bring a diverse group of people together, get them to bond with each other, and then start seeing success for themselves and their communities, then we can begin to tackle larger issues. But we need to kind of rev up and build to that level. And that takes years. This isn't, okay, I'm going to start a concert series. Every year we'll do one concert and raise a lot of money and awareness. No, this is like day in, day out. Slow, steady, consistency. Like people have now been members for seven, eight years, which is incredible. And they'll continue to be members in their 80s and 90s. Like this isn't going anywhere. It's the long haul. So then if you are listening to this and I'll make this the final question is talking about, you know, starting like seven years ago, you've been working on these types of dinners and you have a long-term, you know, you're thinking long with it. What someone who, you know, is listening to this could just, a, what's a barrier, a low barrier to entry type event or something they could do, whether it's a coffee meetup to really mm-hmm. connect people within their own industry. So the first thing I, I, because people often approach me and they're like, oh, I'd really like to launch the Influencers Dinner in another city. Uh, we, just to, as a point of clarification, uh, the intellectual property and everything is wholly owned by the company. And we don't do spinoffs because we it's such an intimate community that the members uh, never wanted that to happen. Um, but we do that in eight different cities. Now, what I do encourage, though, and this is important, is that you create something that is in line with your values and your interests. Because if you try and do something that sounds cool but isn't you, you're going to get really annoyed by year two. (laughs) It's just a lot of effort. So let's say you're a fitness junkie. Start a weekly hike or monthly hike or a hike every three months where you grab a group of people and you go on a hike and you take on a topic. Or you're more of a homebody? Great. Board game night. You don't have to be an extrovert. You can invite six people over to play Settlers of Catan and have an amazing evening. And you're known as like the games night person. You do it once a month. And that's a super low barrier to entry. A board game costs like 30 bucks and you tell people to bring some wine. So it's it doesn't have to be complicated or sophisticated. What it needs to be is novel and well curated. And be willing to fail and change it. Every single dinner, we change one thing. Every single of my events, we change at least one thing and test it to see how the the group responds. And do you think uh, you need a distinct purpose or can you just start it to start it? I started to start it. I didn't know what, what it was going to turn into. And then by like dinner three or four, I was like, oh, I might be onto something. And then by dinner 10, I was like, oh, I'm definitely onto something. And then the New York Times came and was like, we want to write. And I'm like, absolutely not. And they're like, but we're the New York Times. And I was like, good point. <laughs> you are the New York Times. And I take that comment Wait, back. I'm saying no to you? Welcome to my lovely home. Yeah, I'm saying no to this. Yeah, right. Um, all right, cool. Thanks for the insights. Absolutely. And, um, yeah, I, I cover a lot of like the theory and, and concepts behind how to connect with people actually in, in my book, uh, which is called the 2am principle. Well, the book's super easy. I mean, Amazon, Barnes and Noble books, a million, any place books are sold. That sounds cliche, but true. And then as far as finding me, I'm, my name is John Levy, J O N. L-E, V as in Victor, Y as in yellow. And because my name is so common, I have three letters that I added to the end of it. So it's John Levy, T-L-B. T like Thomas, L like Lion, B like Boy. So you can find me at johnlevytlb.com, on Instagram, Twitter, 
Facebook, John Levy Snapchat, John Levy TLB. And so uh, feel free to follow, message, whatever you want. And please pick up a copy of the book. I promise you it will be the most entertaining read you've had in years. And we uh, encourage people to always leave Amazon reviews. That was John Levy. So excited to have him on for two episodes in a row. He was fun, engaging. I learned a lot. I thought the interesting conversation piece was about weak ties and how, I don't know, if you don't know the concept about ties, we're like, you have strong ties and weak ties or no ties. And it's, it's from the 1970s. It's a study of relationship building that most of us have only limited for 150 people that are strong ties. That means our friends. But the equally so, weak ties are people that you are acquaintances with or you're friends of friends. And that's awesome that you can get more work and more relationships and more value from those weak ties. So it's really all about your network and the people that you surround yourself with and then the friends of those people that they surround themselves with. So anyway, that was cool. I love talking about that kind of stuff, as you can tell. So remember, theinfluencerbook.com is where you can find the Amazon listing for my book, The Influencer Economy. It's for anyone launching an idea or a business or a startup in the digital age or anyone that wants to reinvent their career and build a community around their idea. So uh, leave an Amazon review if you haven't already. It's really going to help me. As many of you know, I self-published. So getting a publisher is a huge goal of mine. And the more reviews I get, the better I look on Amazon. And if you like the book anyway, it's a win-win for everyone involved. So thank you with all my sincerest gratitude from my heart. And go to InfluencerEconomy.com for all of the archives. Take care.